0: This episode of the Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Leopards. Wish cheetahs were a little slower? Check out Leopards today. Welcome to episode 21 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's Hottest Podcast, I'm your host, Ethan Brown. To kick off season two today, we are going to talk about ADHD, something I can guarantee you'll think you have if you take this quiz. During this test, you will be asked to keep your own score, giving yourself one point for each yes. Does that sound like far too much work? Give yourself one point. If you missed what I just said, and so you plan to give yourself a point for every question because you think there's a prize for the highest score, give yourself a point. You can track your score with a pen and paper. If you instantly decided that's too much bother, I'll just remember, give yourself one point. Okay, what's the high score on this thing? Because I already have about 8,000 points. To be fair, the quiz is advertised as unofficial and isn't meant to be actual medical advice, but I have to say, it's a little disappointing that a quiz for ADHD took over a minute to get focused and start asking actual questions. ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and depending on whether you ask the American Psychiatric Association or the CDC, somewhere between 5 and 11% of U.S. children have it. And increasingly, doctors and scientists are publishing research with findings like these.
1: Polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, usually shortened to PAH, are a component of air pollution. And new research suggests they may raise the risk of ADHD in children whose mothers are
0: exposed to them. Local scientists say they've found a link between exposure to lead and an increase in ADHD symptoms. Parents and pediatricians are riveted on a major study out tonight which finds a possible link between common pesticides and Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. It's true. While not the only cause, several toxins have been linked to ADHD, and that creates a real issue for individuals with ADHD who often face academic, occupational, and social challenges, for marginalized communities which often face higher exposure to pollutants and lower access to diagnosis, treatment, and support, and for the economy, which faces ADHD-associated costs in the billions of dollars. So today, since October is ADHD Awareness Month, we'll break down why and to what extent the environment contributes to ADHD, what impacts ADHD is having, and how we might improve. But first, since there's a lot of misconceptions about this, let's talk a bit about what exactly ADHD is. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a neurodevelopmental disorder as defined by the American Psychiatric Association in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM. ADHD is currently diagnosed in both children and adults based on the symptoms of inattention and hyperactivity or impulsivity. American Psychiatric Association, you are really playing it fast and loose with the acronym I mean, you're one B away from your manual being sold out on Amazon to a bunch of Fifty Shades of Grey fans trying to do research for their fanfiction novels so they don't get criticized for being inaccurate and problematic. ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders found in children. It's usually noticeable by age seven, though symptoms can appear earlier, and they often extend into adulthood. As the name states, there's two big categories of symptoms, attention deficit and hyperactivity or impulsivity, and depending on the patient, those symptoms can appear in a few different ways. Not everyone with ADHD has the same symptoms. In fact, ADHD diagnoses are separated into three presentations. Primarily inattentive, primarily hyperactive or impulsive, and combined type. Different patients can exhibit more of the inattention symptoms, more of the hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms, or some combination. People with the predominantly inattentive presentation see symptoms such as difficulty with focus, organization, following instructions or attention to detail, forgetfulness, losing things, and avoiding or disliking tasks requiring sustained mental effort. You might have heard of this presentation being referred to as just ADD, which was the official name for ADHD until 1987 when the DSM revised it to reflect the prevalence of patients with hyperactivity. Unfortunately for medical practitioners, the new name didn't really stick, sort of like changing IHOP to IHOB, or changing Harry Potter to Daniel Radcliffe. But I guess struggling with acronyms isn't anything new for the DSM. The predominantly hyperactive or impulsive presentation carries several other symptoms, such as fidgeting, squirming, restlessness, excessive and uncontrolled talking, difficulty taking turns or sitting still, and acting as if driven by a motor. The combined presentation would be a mix of symptoms from the inattentive presentation and the hyperactive or impulsive presentation. People with ADHD also often have coexisting conditions, such as learning disabilities, anxiety, or depression. Now, for anyone listening who hasn't been diagnosed with ADHD, I'm sure you're thinking, wait, I do most of these things. And a year and a half ago, I had that exact thought too. So I got a professional neuropsychological test, and found out that, one, I'm terrible at drawing trapezoids, two, the red circle was supposed to be in the top left corner, and three, even though I experience many of the ADHD symptoms, I don't actually have ADHD. So I understand why the actual ADHD diagnosis can be confusing, and why some people voice the misconception that ADHD is an excuse, or all children are like that. But according to Dr. Steven Kurtz of the Child Mind Institute, there is a key difference between people who have ADHD and people who don't. All of the things that we call symptoms of ADHD, things that relate to being inattentive, things that relate to being very active, things that relate to being impulsive, happen to all kids as part of normal development to some extent or another. And in fact, they happen to all adults uh, to some extent or another. But the thing to remember is that for kids who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD, these things happen about three times more intensely, three times more frequently, and with much, much more impairment. Certainly we've been to lectures or meetings uh, where we've been spaced out for a minute or two. But imagine being inattentive enough that you miss key material and can't keep up with work, or it interferes with social relationships because you're really not paying attention enough to what the other person is saying. And that's really striking. So if you're wondering if you have ADHD, you can absolutely take a neuropsychological test like I did and find out, though be sure it's a real test and not an internet pick your favorite Disney princess and we'll tell you if you have ADHD quiz. But either way, it's important to realize that for people with ADHD, these symptoms are significantly more pronounced. So what causes ADHD? First, I want to go over what doesn't cause it because there are quite a few misconceptions there too.
1: Today we'll be talking about SpongeBob SquarePants and why researchers think that this particular show might be one of the major causes of ADD in young children. The research done by the University of Virginia in Charlottesville tested four-year-old volunteers with following rules, delayed gratification, and remembering series of numbers. One test even challenged the children to resist eating goldfish crackers for five minutes. No surprise, this goldfish challenge was also a killer for the Spongebob group. However, two groups who watched a PBS show and colored for their sessions were able to complete every test.
0: Okay. Setting aside the fact that one, it's ADHD, not ADD, and two, no four-year-old has ever volunteered to do anything besides refuse to take a bath, sneeze directly into your face, or never stop talking for every second of every day, this was just one study, and it had a lot of problems. One, Spongebob is aimed towards six to eleven-year-olds, so setting its effect on four-year-olds is silly. Two, the two test groups who were not watching Spongebob were watching PBS and drawing, which are both mentally stimulating activities and could have helped them pass the tests. Three, each test group only had 20 kids, which is a sample size smaller than the number of ways to spell the name Caitlin. And four, each group only did their activity for nine minutes. To suggest that nine minutes of TV would induce a lifetime neurodevelopmental disorder is... Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, maybe it is stupid, but it's also dumb. Thank you, Squidward and Patrick. But perhaps the misconception that's more pressing for anyone who isn't an employee at Nickelodeon or a talking sponge is that ADHD is caused by bad parenting, because that also is not true. Children with dysfunctional home lives can exhibit some ADHD-like symptoms, but that doesn't mean they have ADHD. So what does cause it? Well, a few things. As developmental psychology professor Edmund Sanuga-Bark explains. We know for a long time that ADHD, of course, runs in families. Now the reason for that is complex to work out for one very good reason, that parents, of course, pass on the genes, but they also create the rearing environment. We also know that ADHD is correlated with both genetic risk and with environmental risk. Sort of like with asthma, which we discussed back in July, ADHD is both genetic and environmental. People with biological differences in the brain, severe brain damage in the womb or from a head injury, premature birth, epilepsy, and prenatal exposure to drugs or alcohol also face a higher risk. And I don't want to overstate the environmental component here, because like the fact that the ratings for Keeping Up with the Kardashians have declined after Courtney quit the show, neurotoxins aren't the only factor or even the main factor for ADHD, but it absolutely is a factor. And mitigating these risk factors could help the issue of ADHD and would have a lot of other benefits too. One environmental contributor is lead. We did a whole episode on lead paint back in May, which covers some lead issues more broadly. But specifically regarding ADHD, lead has a profound impact on the functionality of the brain. Okay, so neurons have a long tail called an axon at one end, and branch-like structures called
1: dendrites at the other. In order for neurons to maintain a strong connection, the axon needs to know that the dendrite is receiving its messages. We're getting a message. So the dendrite produces a molecule that lets the axon know it's being heard loud and clear. Copy that axon.
0: Message received.
1: That molecule is called BDNF. In order for the cell to produce BDNF, it needs calcium. But when lead's present, it jams the door,
0: preventing calcium from entering and keeping BDNF from being made. That means that the connections between brain cells start to wither. And the only thing more troubling than lead withering the connections between brain cells is the fact that the axon makes the dendrite tell it every single time it receives a message. Seriously, axon, maybe the dendrite is doing homework. Maybe it's taking a shower. Maybe it's, God forbid, hanging out with its friends. I don't know. But if this relationship is going to work, you're going to need to loosen your grips, Axon, and have a little trust, because the dendrite isn't cheating on you. It just has a life outside of responding to your messages, and you need to respect that, stop being so controlling, and get a damn life of your own. So lead is really dangerous for the brain, for adults, and especially for children whose brains are making and removing new connections at much faster rates. And lead can, as we've discussed, be found in the paint of any home built before 1978 in the U.S., but it can also turn up in drinking water, soil, toys, jewelry, ceramics, cosmetics, and even some imported spices and candies. Another environmental contributor is mercury, which we discussed just a few weeks ago. Mercury is fat-soluble, and the brain is 60% fat, except, of course, for your mama's brain, which is so fat that when the doctors took an MRI, the file was so big that it didn't fit on their hard drive. So when mercury enters the brain, it interferes with cell processes and causes DNA damage, and for fetuses, it actually interrupts the growth cones of the neurons, all of which can lead to ADHD. ADHD. Mercury can be found in fish, old light bulbs and thermometers, cosmetics, jewelry, and dental amalgams, to name a few sources. Another set of neurotoxins are benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene, typically shortened to BTEX. BTEX can occur naturally via volcanoes and forest fires, but increasingly enter the atmosphere through crude oil, natural gas, cigarette smoke, and other petroleum products such as gasoline. And ingesting BTEX pollutants is extremely dangerous. Just ask this guest from TLC's My Strange Addiction. Teresa has been addicted to smelling gasoline for over 30 years. She takes a sniff every 10 minutes and even wakes up in the middle of the night for a fix. Teresa was only 13 years old when her dad asked if she wanted to smell his gas can. I smelled it that one
1: time and that was all it took.
0: I'm sorry. Did he just say that her dad asked her if she wanted to smell his gas can? I'm not a parent, but I don't think there's anything worse you could say to a 13-year-old child besides, do you want to touch my tailpipe, or let's watch Wet Hot American Summer. Sadly, Teresa's addiction caused her severe brain damage and memory loss, and while she's obviously had a lot more BTEX exposure than the average person, Everyone is exposed via power plant emissions, car and airplane exhaust, and other petroleum products. Several studies have linked BTEX to health impacts like cancer, nervous system damage, and neurological damages such as vascular congestion, memory loss, sleep impairment, and if you hadn't guessed already, ADHD. And the list of ADHD-associated neurotoxins goes on and on. Some research has suggested polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are released via fossil fuels, biofuels, and tobacco smoking, might be linked to ADHD. A 2015 study found that pyrethroids, a class of chemicals used in some pesticides, shampoos, pet sprays, and lice treatments to control mosquitoes, could be producing an ADHD phenotype, and arsenic has been shown to cause inattention and impulsivity in children. When you put all of this together and add all of these different neurotoxins up, According to NYU's Leo Tresand, it paints a sobering picture. The National Academy of Sciences has suggested that on the order of 28% of developmental disabilities have at least an environmental factor contributing to them. Most of these are the combination of genetics and environment, with genetics being the lock, the proverbial lock, and the environmental factor being the proverbial key that opens up that condition. And that's really scary. Almost as scary as the fact that whoever edited that video thought that message fit best with possibly the most upbeat and inspirational piece of music I've ever heard. Seriously, read the room. So what impacts is ADHD having? First off, for individuals who have ADHD, it can pose some real challenges. Academically, studies have found that students with ADHD have persistent difficulties leading to lower grades, more expulsions, and increased dropout rates. ADHD can affect one's relationships and social life, since socializing depends on paying attention to other people. Adults with ADHD face challenges that may impact their productivity in the workplace and their reputation as an employee, leading to higher job turnover, which poses more challenges since in addition to the huge financial burden of losing a job, adults with ADHD have also been found to struggle both with staying organized during the job interview process and whether or not to disclose their ADHD to their prospective employer. And on top of all these immense stresses for individuals with ADHD and their families, ADHD has led to some huge economic costs.
1: And When we tallied up all of the work absences that adults with ADHD had, when we tallied up their lower productivity at work, and we put this into a health economics model, we computed that adult ADHD cost the U.S. economy about $100 billion a year.
0: That was SUNY Upstate Medical University psychiatrist Stephen Ferrone and he's right. Adult ADHD cost the U.S. economy between 87 and $138 billion per year. That's almost as much money as the Jets paid on Bell before he decided to tweet that he wanted to be traded. Although, in all fairness to on, if I had to go from the Steelers to the Jets, I'd be pretty desperate for a way out, too. And that's just adults. For children, ADHD-associated healthcare costs Are 21 to 44 billion, education costs are 15 to 25 billion, and spillover costs borne by family members are 33 to 43 billion. Add all of that up, and you're looking at costs equivalent to the entire GDP of New Zealand. Like with many issues we discuss on this podcast, those costs are not spread evenly across the board. For one, Most sources of these neurotoxins, from mercury-emitting coal plants to betex-emitting trucks to houses with lead paint, are seen at higher rates in low-income and minority communities. And on top of that, according to USC professor of clinical pharmacy Julie Duffeid, racial and ethnic minorities are much less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD and receive access to treatment. An analysis of 17,000 100 children, kindergartners, was conducted by the National Institutes of Health and it was a representative sample from across the United States. And what was found is that there was significantly lower uh, diagnosing for African-American, Hispanic, and other ethnicities compared to white or Caucasian children. And ethnic minorities were not only less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, they were also less likely to be prescribed ADHD medication. And look, I get that when you start pulling together all of these different issues with all of these different neurotoxins, it can start to feel overwhelming. And it's even more overwhelming to think that that's just one of multiple factors contributing to ADHD. At this point, I feel like this episode is the Avengers endgame of the Sweaty Penguin cinematic universe, but instead of every superhero, it's every environmental issue. I mean, you've got Mercury as the Hulk, Pyrethroid pesticides as Ant-Man, Lead as Iron Man, obviously, and B-Tex as the Disney executives who were so hungry for cash they were willing to bring together every Marvel superhero into one movie so that instead of just ruining one superhero franchise, they could ruin every single superhero franchise all at once. I could see an argument to do that for Iron Man or Captain America or even Black Widow, but Ant-Man? Come on, why do you have to do Paul Rudd dirty like that? He's been nothing but good to you. So while ADHD likely wouldn't disappear if we eliminated every neurotoxin, we absolutely can make improvements, both by reducing people's exposure to neurotoxins and by getting people access to treatment. And let's start with treatment. Before a patient can be treated, they need to be diagnosed. And according to Dr. Ferrone, who we heard in one of the earlier clips, even that's not going smoothly.
1: One reason that adult ADHD has not been recognized regularly in primary care practices is that it's not viewed as a disorder that has a high degree of severity and that's costly to the patient, to the families, and to society. Uh, this is a mistake. And this mistake is due to the lack of training of primary care doctors about adult ADHD
0: and to think doctors have knowledge gaps is really staggering. I mean, what else do they not know? Am I really five six? Do I really need to drink milk and limit my screen time? Do they really need to stick their finger up my ass when I'm 50? Of course, that's not to say doctors are wrong or aren't experts, but it's important moving forward that primary care doctors understand ADHD so they can correctly diagnose patients and that marginalized communities have access to medical professionals with that expertise. After getting patients a diagnosis comes treatment, and while there is no cure to ADHD, there are medications that can help patients manage their ADHD. Some, such as Ritalin and Adderall, are stimulants, which increase the amount of certain neurotransmitters in the brain, most prominently targeting dopamine, which helps us think, plan, and feel happy. Others, such as Stratera, are non stimulants and increase levels of norepinephrine in the brain, which helps with attention and memory. There's actually quite a bit of controversy surrounding whether or not medications are overprescribed due to people without ADHD who want the medications for recreation getting their hands on them, or underprescribed due to ADHD being underdiagnosed and undertreated, particularly in marginalized communities. And since doctors are debating this as much as they debated whether or not Alex and Izzy on Grey's Anatomy should have gotten married, I can't really say one way or the other. But I will say it's entirely possible that both issues are happening and we're just unsure to what extent. As psychologist Charles Walker explains, medication is just one piece of the puzzle.
1: From a psychologist standpoint, I have to say medication can help a great deal. But many of these people need psychotherapy too. And in that case, the type of psychotherapy they get... Um, involves some coaching in terms of some skill development, things like that. They need to learn organizational skills. They need to learn how to establish certain kinds of routines and uh, things like that that will help them to remain productive and organized.
0: Psychotherapy, as well as school or work accommodations, and even educating parents on how best to support their child can be really helpful too. Like with diagnosis, these support systems could be made a lot more accessible. According to the American Psychological Association, African Americans are 7.3 times as likely to live in high-poverty neighborhoods with limited to no access to mental health services as their white counterparts. Since ADHD is both an individual and familial challenge and a significant economic cost, providing that access to low-income and minority communities could go a long way. Beyond treatment, we can also talk about how to mitigate these neurotoxins, which could reduce ADHD prevalence and would absolutely have a host of other environmental, economic, and health benefits. Individuals can take some actions, like not eating fish bigger than the size of your plate to avoid mercury, prioritizing walking, cycling, public transit, or electric cars, particularly in urban areas, to avoid BTEX pollution, and not sucking on lead paint chips. But ultimately, a large portion is out of people's control, particularly for marginalized communities who might, for example, live downwind of a coal plant or have contaminated drinking water. Because of that, mitigating each toxin takes a much larger effort on the policy side. Luckily, there is a lot we can do. In our lead paint episode, we discussed ways governments can help test homes for lead and either mandate support or financially incentivize landlords to remove or seal off lead paint in their properties to make sure tenants aren't hit with a hike in rent. In our mercury episode, we discussed ways coal plants and artisanal gold mines can cut mercury emissions and how countries can work together through treaties to make reductions. For mercury and for BTECs and PAHs, a transition away from energy sources like coal, oil, natural gas, and biofuel that release these pollutants would of course make a huge difference too. And as we've talked about as recently as two weeks ago, the transition to renewable energy has a host of benefits beyond just limiting neurotoxins and is increasingly the most economically and environmentally viable path forward. And of course, it would take a lot longer than 30 to 40 minutes to adequately cover all the ways we could mitigate every single neurotoxin, so I won't attempt to do that today. But if there's one thing to take away here, it's that even if the environment isn't the sole cause of ADHD, and a significant portion is genetic or biological, neurotoxins are absolutely a factor, and improving access to diagnosis, treatment, and support, and curbing neurotoxin exposure would absolutely make a difference. Because otherwise, We'd be stuck on the same path we're on now, with hundreds of billions of dollars in annual economic costs hitting marginalized communities the hardest, and children and adults with ADHD struggling at school, at work, and socially. And if we were to stay on this trajectory, that would be, well... The stupidest thing I've ever heard! Well, maybe it is stupid, but it's also dumb! Do you wish lions were better at hide-and-go-seek? If so, leopards are for you! But due to habitat loss and poaching, leopards are listed as vulnerable by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And some species like the Amur leopard in eastern Russia and Korea are critically endangered. Or maybe they're just really, really good at hiding. Either way, time's running out, so get your leopard today. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Luz Claudio, a Professor of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Chief of the Division of International Health. Dr. Claudio, welcome to the show.
1: Hola, Nathan. Nice to talk to you today.
0: So you co-authored a study that found an association between BTECs and material hardship and ADHD suggestive behaviors. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the study worked and what the findings were.
1: In this particular case, we used data that actually comes from the National Air Toxics Assessment, which is a NASA project that uses lasers to estimate different pollutants in the air across the globe. So we are able to use that database, which is not collected by us, obviously, but it's something that exists and is publicly available to relate it to other outcomes that are also collected by other people. In that case, we use a study that has been ongoing, looking at children at nine months old and following them over time about their behaviors and their scholastic outcomes. We use that uh, database, which is called the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study of Birth Cohort. And it's an ongoing study of 10,000 children. And for our purposes, we brought it down to almost 5,000 of those that fit the criteria that we were looking at. And so with the data from the air pollutants, like you mentioned, VTEC, it's a combination of pollutants that have been shown, really, it are very really well known, this mixture of pollutants that are, are known to have neurotoxic effects. So to us, it had logical explanation or a logical possibility that children that are exposed to, to this pollutant in the air, in the ambient air, could have some measurable neurobehavioral effects because these pollutants like toluene uh, are no neurotoxic in high concentrations.
0: As a doctor with a neuroscience background, I was wondering if you could give us an idea of why these pollutants are having these neurological effects.
1: That's such a great question, you know, because the brain is usually protected from things in the blood. It's relatively protected by something called the blood-brain barrier, which is what I studied when I was in my doctorate degree. I'm an expert on the blood-brain barrier, if you can be that. So these are the properties of the blood vessels of the brain that really try to keep your brain safe because your brain is such an important part of you. The people have evolved to have this extra protection. And so a lot of the things that are circulating in your blood that that you are exposed to in the blood don't cross into the brain. But some of the things that you inhale through the nose can bypass the blood-brain barrier through the olfactory system. So that's kind of like a, a backdoor <laughs> to the brain in some ways. And so these particular chemicals that we were studying are very volatile. So that's part of the reason why they can bypass this protection and go through the olfactory system into
0: the brain. Um, with ADHD, from what I've read, it seems like the genetic piece is a bigger fraction than the environmental piece, and the environmental piece includes not just BTEX pollutants, but others such as lead. So with all of these different factors playing in, would we expect to see a significant change in ADHD suggestive behaviors if BTEX were mitigated?
1: In this particular study, we also... Looked at a variable that is called material hardship that integrates several socioeconomic factors together to give you a a sense of the socioeconomic status of this population that we were looking at, of children and families. And so that integrated variable, material hardship, was composed of insecurity in the access to food and healthcare and housing and income. And so this particular measure was also strongly related to ADHD. And so we think that although the effect wasn't additive, we know that many populations that have material hardship have also a risk for different neurodevelopmental issues in children. Food insecurity can be a... a, highly stressful, especially now at this time. And so we know that quality of food is very important in brain development, especially at the younger age, which we were studying. These are children that were in kindergarten or were entering kindergarten. And at that point, they were assessed for ADHD type of behaviors. And they exhibited those behaviors when they either had this measure of material hardship or they were exposed to these pollutants this neurotoxic pollutants so in answer to your question we think that reducing exposure to neurotoxins especially at a young age definitely would help in improving neurobehavior and cognition in children but i think it's most important to recognize and to not pin, you know, like genetics versus environmental exposure, or in this case, material hardship versus exposure to different neurotoxicants. I think that it's important to address the issue in every way we can. So if we can, and as a society and as a nation, address material hardship to improve health and behaviors and brain health in children, We should do that. And if we can also put scrubs in smokestacks to reduce releasing neurotoxicants into the air, we should do that. In academic science, we tend to really show one thing or the other and then leave it at that. And what I really would like to do in my next phase in my career is to approach more dissolutions. We know a lot about many of these chemicals, we know a lot about how socioeconomics affects children's health. So what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. As much as the science is a continuous process, it's also far enough along that we know enough to start taking some action and You've, of course, found a lot more links between neuropsychological impairments and air pollutants concentrated in communities with low socioeconomic status all over the world. I saw another study you co-authored where you found a link between children's third grade standardized test scores and exposure to diesel particulate matter and perchloroethylene. So if we zoom out from the ADHD and BTEX study, what are we seeing around the world and what needs to happen?
1: We already know so many chemicals that affect children's brains. We know lead is one of the most studied. There's no question. Nobody has to show that it's neurotoxic. We know for centuries, really, that it can affect the brain, especially in children. We know this, and yet... Only a few years ago, we had the situation in Flint, where so many people have been exposed to lead in the water there. And so having the political will, the community engagement, the industry's commitment to reducing neurotoxic releases into the environment so that we can protect children's brain, is, it would be amazing if we could do that uh, somehow, especially when it comes to minority communities that tend to be most affected by these things. We can talk about this in the U.S. We have done a lot of studies in the U.S. about this and we also are working with international partners in the same situations where there's exposure to lead, where there's exposure to pesticides, and it's a global issue. With respect to lead as an example, when lead was taken out of gasoline, people saw an increase in IQ levels in the population of children. That should tell you that investing in reducing neurotoxic effects on children will have such an amazing payoff. Your generation is smarter than my generation because you were less, exposed to lead. And that has been shown in different studies. So what could be the next generation, how smarter, how much more focused, how much more empathic and intelligent they will be able to be, my daughter and that generation, when we take out neurotoxicants from the environment.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it would make a really big difference. So in terms of Moving forward and creating awareness for these issues, I know part of the issue seems to be that there's just a lot of misconceptions out there about what some of these neuropsychological impairments are. So how do we improve the diagnosis of these things? How do we create the awareness that these are actual issues, and, but keep the nuance because these are this is a very nuanced topic?
1: Yes, ADHD is a tough one because there's such a spectrum and it's not one disease or one condition really is every child presents with a different case. In in this situation, there's been some hypothesis and some thought about especially minority children being under, actually underdiagnosed because they don't have access to healthcare as much, especially in such a difficult, like you said, a difficult syndrome to diagnose, like ADHD should be, is a spectrum of different behaviors, different levels of severity. However, it's been shown in several places that the earlier you identify children that have these behavioral challenges, and like you say, it's not necessarily a disease. Some children are just more rambunctious than others, but when it affects their learning, that's when it's a problem. There are interventions that can be done early in children that can help them better learn, which is the whole goal is for them to be able to learn in school and in their life. So, in fact, I think that having these indicators by the teachers can really help identify some children that need help and not depend on by the time they go to a doctor and are identified as such.
0: What steps would we need to take to? provide these communities with the resources they need to do these earlier interventions, which you're saying can be a lot more helpful than finding out later on.
1: That's a really fantastic question. And it touches on what I would like to see in terms of helping improve the neurological health of children. And there needs to be a lot more integration between the school system and the health system in some cities and states there's more collaboration in terms of whether this is an issue of the department of health or the department of education how can those two departments sometimes they don't really talk to each other so well and so i would like to see more improvement in that where if a teacher has the time, like you said, especially in minority communities or in schools that are strapped, there's very large school sizes, and teachers barely can keep up with what they have to do every day, let alone trying to see whether some children are having hyperactivity or attention problems. But if there was an easier way to facilitate teachers observations and communication to the health system, a physician or other healthcare provider who can assess the child more deeply. I think that would make a huge difference in, in, in trying to identify what child, who, who needs the most help and who can be helped early on so, so they can you know, be ready for learning in school. I I am really excited about your podcast and how you address environmental issues, which is really the most important challenge that we have that your generation is facing, including COVID, including all of these health challenges and threats to our environment and our health. And so I encourage you to visit my website, drluesclaudio.com, and look at some of the internship opportunities we have available, and also to learn more about the work that we do in environmental health.
0: Dr. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Ethan. So fun
0: to talk to you. This wraps up episode 21 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it, or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Dane Kim and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rawlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Built Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweats Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.